My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Happy November, y'all. Welcome back to the history behind the crime. Since the last time we met, there have been a whole slew of new listeners from everywhere, from Kentucky and Arizona to all the way in Sweden. Uh, I just want to say welcome and hey. And, you know, please reach out if you have any questions or suggestions uh, or corrections. I'm very open to corrections. I want to start with the news coming out of Indiana. On October 31st, the Delphi police arrested a suspect in the murders of 13-year-olds Abby Williams and Libby German. On February 13th, 2017, Abby and Libby went on a hike in their town of Delphi, Indiana, when they went missing. The next day, their bodies were found in a creek bed. They had both been murdered. Investigators discovered one of the girls had actually taken pixelated photos of the suspicious man and audio recordings on her phone, uh, which may have actually helped to the investigation. While tips came in nearly every day, police did not have a good suspect. Since the girls' murders, both podcasts and true crime shows and documentaries have tested theories and implored the public to come forward with any information. Finally, police announced on October 31st they arrested Richard Allen, a local Delphi man, with Abby and Libby's murders. The probable cause affidavit remains sealed for now, so we don't know what led investigators to Allen, but a court date has been scheduled later this month to discuss unsealing those documents. I don't think I can tell you how excited and relieved I was when I heard the news of the arrest. Many people I know who have been following the case, we were texting each other and posting on social media all day and are waiting for updates on this case. This is something I will be waiting for too. But I am so relieved the girls' families might finally get some answers after all these years. Another update coming out of Kansas City. A few episodes ago, I reported on... Uh, a woman who escaped an abductor's house in early October of this year where she had been held for nearly a month and sexually assaulted. Uh, she claimed there had also been other women held in the house. Police made an arrest in that case, but the black community in Kansas City were in an uproar because they had been calling the police's attention to missing black women in the area, some of who were sex workers. It seems the police, for the most part, didn't believe the allegations and even went public saying there were no reports of missing women in the area. Despite many families and friends coming forward claiming they had tried to file reports, but they were rebuffed by the police. After the escape of the kidnapped victim, 
Police are investigating any other missing women in the area and have increased patrols in the concerned neighborhoods. However, according to community leaders and some news reports, skepticism remains high in the Kansas City Police Department simply because they haven't found any bodies, which is obviously horse shit. Many murder victims' bodies are never discovered or are discovered years after the crime. Here in Washington, there are still several victims of Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer, who have not been discovered yet. For police to say there is no killer simply because there are no bodies leads me to believe either the police don't care or they're inept. Yeah, I know. It's a harsh view. But as, but as I've stated before, law enforcement needs to be held to a high standard. I want the best of the best serving and protecting my community. Why would any of us stand for anything less? Friends, hold your local police and sheriff's departments accountable. There are bad people out there, and I want real heroes who care to capture those monsters. Woo! Okay, so every now and again my little soapbox comes out, but I'm going to go ahead and, and put that away for now so we can get down to why we're all here. Not just crime, but history too. So in the past, I've been asked where I get the ideas for my podcast episodes. Uh, some come out of my little sick and twisted head. Uh, sometimes they come from other podcasters' shows. Uh, sometimes they simply come from me walking around my favorite used bookstore and I see a book that catches my eye. And that's what happened a few months ago when I was browsing the true crime section and saw a book entitled Psychic Detectives Using the Power of the Mind to Solve True Crimes by Jenny Randalls and Peter Hugh. At first I gave this kind of like, you know, like little dismissive snort, but then I started to think about it. When did detectives start using psychics and do they actually help? I'm sure there are a lot of people in both the believers and non-believers camps. And honestly, I would be lying if I said I had never visited a psychic palm reader or, you know, had my tarot cards read. Am I a believer in psychics? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm certain. Um, I'm certainly open to the possibility that there are people out there who are a bit more sensitive than others, but I doubt any of them go on television to flaunt their talents. I'm sensing a name starting with the D. Does that mean anything to anyone? I'm sure there are people who do have precognitive abilities, um, but I'm also sure that they would rather remain anonymous or else face the scorn of people who would cast them as witches or Satan worshippers or some other nonsense. After doing some research, I discovered that there are several different kinds of psychics, including those that are able to read other people's minds, uh, which are telepathics, uh, those who can see people or events uh, that are distant in time and space, uh, those are called clairvoyants, uh, and there's those who are sensitive to ghosts or spirits who tell them things. Those are obviously mediums. And I'm sure if you study parapsychology, 
you will come up with a whole slew of different kinds of psychics and the like. However, we are here for history and crime. So when did psychics start popping up? Almost from the beginning of mankind. For this podcast, we're going to start with biblical and classical history. Yay! Psychics weren't always called psychics. In the Torah and in the Bible, uh, they're referred to as prophets. And cue my inbox filling up with lots of hate mail. So come on, guys. Biblical prophets were pretty much psychics. They knew things about the future that no one else knew about. They were clairvoyants. They had a direct line to the big man who told them, hey, go out and warn these people that either trouble is coming or the Messiah is coming. You know, either one. Uh, Take Noah, for example. He was warning people about an apocalyptic flood and was building a huge boat before it even started to rain. This was like a holy psychic prediction. Moses talking to the Pharaoh. Hey, you know, if you don't let my people go, a lot of bad stuff is going to happen. These were the ultimate psychics because they were right. What's even more interesting is that the Bible warned its readers about false prophets as well. Jesus told his followers you would recognize these false prophets by their evil fruits. I suppose you can interpret that as people who claim to be prophets or in our case, psychics, who use their, quote, gifts for to gain money or to gain power. Moving on. I think one of the most popular psychics in classical history were those of Delphi, also known as the oracles of Delphi. Delphi was one of the Greek god Apollo's cities in ancient Greece, and there was a huge temple there devoted to him. The shrine dates back to 1400 BC and became one of the most important Greek shrines and one of the most powerful religious places in ancient Greece. It was also considered the center of the world. Uh, It was the home uh, to Pythia, which was the name for the high priestess of Apollo and was also the Oracle of Delphi. The priestesses of Delphi were chosen from the local female population and spent their lives in service to Apollo. They all possessed some psychic powers, according to legend, but it was the Pythia who held the ultimate seer capability. And please don't think Pythia was just like one person. There were hundreds of Pytheas from 1400 BC to the fourth century AD. Pythia had a direct line to Apollo. Nine days out of the year, mostly in warmer months because Apollo didn't like the colder months that much, Uh, people could travel to Delphi and request an audience with the Oracle. Not only did you have to pay for a consultation, but you had to be chosen by the gods as well. How was this accomplished? Cold water was sprinkled onto the back of a goat, and if the goat shivered, you were in. If the goat didn't shiver, well... Hey, better luck next time. Also, the more money you had, the more likely you would get in. You know, girls got to make a living after all. People would ask lots of questions like the old standbys, who am I going to marry? Or will I get that job that I desperately want? 
or ask questions about how to cure an illness and such. Greek leaders asked questions about whether or not they should go to war or how to resolve disputes between Greek states. The oracle was so popular and powerful that the priestesses actually played an important role in establishing Greek democracy and law and order. No one knows what gave the oracle her ability to channel Apollo, but some believe there was a natural gas in the temple that got the oracle high. Very well could be. Other lesser known oracles in Greece would use bird sign or read <laughs> animal entrails in order to see the future. <laughs> you know, tea leaves would have been less messy. The Oracle of Delphi operated throughout the height of both the Greek and Roman empires until the rise of Christianity. The last recorded prophecy occurred in 393 AD, right before the Roman emperor Theodosius I ordered that the temple be shut down because it was too pagan. Oddly enough, he was the last emperor to rule over the entire Roman Empire before the empire officially split into the Western and Eastern empires in 395. Maybe a coincidence? Maybe not. Probably the most famous psychic in modern European history, if not all of history, would have been Michael D. Nostradam, better known under his gangster name, Nostradamus. This cool cat lived in France in the 16th century and was a popular astrologer, seer, and astronomer. You would think, after some of the previous episodes, Nostradamus would have been hunted down and burned as a witch because anyone who could see the future is bad news. But no. Astrologers were actually very popular uh, among both royalty and nobility who sought them out for counsel. England's Queen Elizabeth I routinely visited her court astrologer for advice, and several hundred years later, Nancy Reagan would seek advice from astrologers when it was time to make up Ronnie's presidential schedule. As for Nostradamus, he had a patron in, in Queen Catherine de' Medici who was a French queen, mother to three French kings, and niece to the Pope. Girls got some power, right? Uh, she had some pretty big pool in France, so Nostradamus was cool to write his 942 poetic quatrains uh, predicting the future. Some interpretations to the quatrains, because they're not so clear, uh, predicted the rise of both Napoleon and Hitler, the French Revolution, the moon landing, and even the death of Princess Diana and the 9-11 attacks. People today still put a lot of stock into Nostradamus' predictions, and there's about a billion History Channel shows about them. Finally, I want to take you into the 19th century when modern spiritualism really started to become popular. Yeah, that was all that seance stuff. In the early 1800s, many people would have disapproved of trying to communicate with ghosts because it would have been seen as witchcraft. But another queen changed that mindset. In 1861, Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, died, leaving her absolutely bereft. I mean, to the point where she had an unhealthy obsession with her husband after his death. After Albert died, a teenage medium, Robert James Lee, 
channeled Albert and passed on a message to the queen from her dead husband. Robert even used the pet name only Albert and Victoria used for each other in private. After that, Robert was invited to Windsor Castle several times to conduct seances to channel Albert. And after Victoria's death, her daughter Louise used mediums to try to contact Victoria. Oh, by the way, both Victoria and Albert had participated in seances before his death. So a lot of people started to think, well, if it's okay for the queen to host seances, I guess it's okay for me too. Seances and other forms of spiritualism became very popular in Victorian slash Gothic England. And the practices jumped the pond to the United States and managed to make a few converts out of the more straight-laced and religious Americans. A lot of people jumped on board this new fad, which opened the doors and minds for psychics in law enforcement. The use of psychics to solve crimes isn't really a 20th century idea. In fact, more people, especially the justice system, were more prone to believe psychics and mediums in the past than people are today. One of the earliest examples I found of, sol of psychic solving crimes dates all the way back to 1631 in England. That September in County Durham, which is way up in North England, a beautiful young teenage Anne went to live with her uncle Christopher Walker to take care of him and his house. By many accounts, Walker became very close to Anne and she got pregnant. Back then, it wasn't really that shameful your uncle knocked you up, but being pregnant outside of wedlock would ruin your reputation for the rest of your life. Walker sent Anne to live with her aunt, but one night Walker and another man, Mark Sharp, a local miner, took Anne under the pretense they were taking her to a place where she could hide her shame, i.e. a place she could be pregnant and give birth in secret but no one saw Anne after that night. Except for the local miller, James Graham, who came across Anne in his mill. Anne stood in his mill in a torn dress with her hair matted with blood from several wounds to her head. It was the spirit of Anne. As Graham begged for protection from God, Anne told Graham how Mark Sharp had used a pick to kill her in the moors and hid her body, the pick, and his bloody clothes in a coal pit. As Anne told the tale of her death, Graham could see the murder unfold in his head like he had actually witnessed it. Anne told Graham she wanted justice and she would haunt him until she received it. At first, Graham neglected to report the murder to the magistrate, not because he would sound crazy, but because Christopher Walker was a man in good standing in the town. He was very much respected. But the ghost of Anne appeared several more times to Graham until he finally said, you know, forget this, and, report, and reported the murder to the chief magistrate. To say that the magistrate doubted Graham's story was an understatement, and he and another magistrate grilled Graham. 
and they found that he seemed sincere and that the guy had never met Anne while she was alive. There was nothing in Graham's background to make it appear that the miller craved attention. A search was formed in Anne's body. The pick and the bloody clothes were found where Graham said they were. Both Walker and Mark Sharp were promptly arrested for Anne's murder. But there was only circumstantial evidence against Walker, whereas Mark Sharp's guilt was obvious. During the trial, Anne appeared to one of the witnesses. In terror, the witness described how Anne stood in the courtroom and pointed to her uncle as the man who had orchestrated her murder. The jury was sold and convicted both Walker and Sharp of Anne's murder. The judge, so disturbed by the death and the haunting in his courtroom, sentenced both the men to death. Today, no jury in the world would have believed Graham and the witness, but the people in the 17th century were more open and fearful of the supernatural. There have been several cases in England since then where witnesses claimed they saw the ghosts of murder victims and they were taken at their word. It was quite simply considered evidence. Another case involves our old friend Robert James Lee and the first recognized modern day serial killer, Jack the Ripper. By the time Jack began his murders in London in 1888, Lee was a renowned clairvoyant who was also endorsed by Queen Victoria. I mean, this sounds like the guy you want to get to know at a party, right? The story goes that shortly after Jack's third murder, and I think that would have been Elizabeth Stride, Lee had a vision of a narrow court near a gin bar. In his vision, he could see a man attacking a very drunk woman. The man first cut the woman's throat and then repeatedly stabbed her. Lee clearly saw the attacker's face and felt compelled to go to Scotland Yard and tell them what he saw. And they were all like, yeah, okay. Until the murder of Catherine Eddowes. Her body was found in a narrow square not too far away from a gin house. Her throat had been slashed and she had been stabbed and disemboweled. Though it's not really verifiable that Lee actually helped with the case, he wrote in his diaries that he had. One day, Lee was so overcome by the evil resonating from one man, he stopped to follow him and grabbed a passing police officer to help. The man Lee followed was Dr. William Witty Gull, physician to the royal family and Queen Victoria herself. Ripperologists have also made the claim that Gull was the killer, or at least knew who the killer was. I personally have a difficult time believing Gull was Jack the Ripper because the man had suffered a stroke in 1887 and was not in the best of health. Although, it would have been pretty ironic because Gull championed uh, women to pursue medicine. So the irony would be, by day, he was promoting women to, to pursue medicine, but by night, he slaughtered them. 
very ironic. Needless to say, the police did not put much stock into Lee's visions, nor did they believe Gold was the killer. Or did they? There is a story out there that Gull was secretly arrested for the murders and locked away in a sane asylum. A fake funeral was even held for him in 1890. Everything was covered up to save the royal family and the queen embarrassment over hiring and even ennobling the first modern-day serial killer. Lee wasn't the only psychic to offer Scotland Yard assistance during the time of the investigation, but official documentation suggested the police didn't take any, take any of them seriously. I mean, I wouldn't leave a paper trail like that behind either. Over the decades, many psychics have tried to solve what is probably the most famous murder mystery in history. The most famous of which has been Pamela Ball, who styled herself as a counselor and therapist, but is mostly known for her books on dream interpretations and psychic stories. Ball conducted a psychic investigation to find Jack's true identity and traveled throughout Whitechapel trying to make contact with the victims and with Jack himself. You can read all about her journey in Jack the Ripper, A Psychic Investigation. And you can also be the first to review it on Amazon. Joking aside, if you do want a really good book about the murders, may I suggest The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Haley Rubenhold. Rubenhold is a historian, not a psychic, who did some pretty in-depth research on the canonical five, and her book was also on Oprah's list for best true crime novels. Very, very well written. This leads us up to more modern times. After doing a lot of reading, I can tell you that police investigating some of the most notorious murders or missing persons cases have been contacted by psychics. Simply Googling things like Ted Bundy and psychics or psychics in the Oklahoma City bombing wielded so many results. There's even a YouTube video of a psychic reading trying to find out who killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. All these hits resulted in a whole week of rabbit holes, which is why I was late getting this podcast out. Next time, I just simply need to remind myself to flesh out some parameters before I start my search. What I discovered... In most cases, either psychics reach out directly to law enforcement or the families of victims reach out to psychics. Rarely do investigators contact psychics for assistance, but sometimes they do. The Department of Justice even puts out guides on how to use psychics in investigations and offers a list of appropriate psychics to use. Psychic Criminology, a guide for using psychics and investigations, offers law enforcement a, quote, comprehensive manual of operations for using psychics and criminal investigations in a, in a disciplined, efficient, and professional manner, which I suppose gives some credence to the ability of psychics to help solve crimes. I wanted to find a case we all know about where psychics were used and accurately assisted law enforcement. I came up with a doozy. Two, not just one 
psychics helped detectives during the investigation of missing teen Robert Peist in 1978 into Plains, Illinois. Sound familiar? It will. One evening in December 1978, Robert went missing from the drugstore he worked at as his mother sat outside the store waiting to pick him up. Robert was a pretty good kid uh, with lots of friends and there was no reason for him to run away. The police were called and it was discovered Robert was talking to a man about a construction job before he disappeared. The man in question was identified as a construction business owner who was also a pillar of the community and entertained children in his clown outfits. Yeah, we're talking about John Wayne Gacy. Missing persons detectives zeroed in on Gacy, but they had no evidence to search his house or anything. Remember, at this time, they were only investigating Gacy for the, dis the disappearance of Robert. They didn't know who or what Gacy actually was or the terrors that occurred in his house. Pretty much caught at a dead end, the wife of one of the detectives suggested they consult with local psychic Carol Broman. The captain of the, of the detectives gave the go-ahead, but suggested they kind of, you know, Keep it hush-hush. Let's, let's not let this get out. One of the detectives met with Miss Broman. After touching some objects once owned by Robert, she declared the boy was not missing, but dead. She described the manner in which he died, which made her physically ill, and said his body and the bodies of at least six other boys would be found together near construction equipment. She described the killer as a homosexual predator. Shortly after Miss Broman's prediction, police finally obtained a search warrant for Gacy's home after he was caught dealing marijuana. There's a lot more that goes into that story, but we just don't have time for it here. In the end, police discovered not six, but 26 bodies buried in Gacy's crawl space and another three on his property. Robert was not one of them. Gacy later confessed he disposed of Robert off of a bridge into the Des Plaines River. Detectives again contacted a psychic, this time Dorothy Allison from New Jersey, who had assisted police with several investigations and accepted no fee or reward for her predictions. Over the phone, Miss Allison said Robert would be found in a place that smelled of petroleum, near a hotel, which she specifically named, and by the Evergreen Cemetery. It was so specific that investigators invited her to Illinois to give a better location. She did come out to Illinois, guided police to the river, and pointed out where they would find Robert. However, the river was so frozen over that they would not be able to recover him. Undeterred, Allison wrote down the date the detectives would find Robert, gave the note to, the, to a detective, and returned home. Law enforcement found Robert's remains just a quarter mile away from where Miss Allison said he would be, and on the exact date, she wrote down a note to the detective. The difference between this case and many others is that these two psychics were sought out by law enforcement, and each case was verified by the detective himself and not just by the psychic. 
Other cases I found were full of frustration or heartache. In the case of the Atlanta child murders, a whole bunch of psychics sent the police and FBI task force dozens of sketches of what the killer looked like. But none of the sketches were even remotely similar to each other. Even famed FBI profiler John Douglas, who worked the case, commented on the swarming psychics and said the, and said the quote, profiles the psychics volunteered often contradicted each other. Even Miss Allison showed up, but didn't have much luck in Atlanta as she did in Illinois. She gave the police a list with 42 names and said the killer would be on the list. Neither the name Wayne nor Williams was on the list. Wayne Williams was arrested for the murders and convicted of two of them. Miss Allison also neglected to give back the only photo one of the mothers had of their child. Before you start yelling at me and firing off emails, I know there is much debate over whether or not Wayne Williams was actually involved with the murders. Williams was convicted on fiber analysis that probably wouldn't hold up in court today, and the rest of the evidence was circumstantial. Okay, if Williams is not the killer, the real killer may very well be on Miss Allison's list. I did give this some thought. That being said, as open-minded as I am, I am more likely to believe John Douglas who profiled the, the killer and fingered Williams than I am to believe a psychic. To be honest, you know, to be fair, I will choose John Douglas every day of the week and twice on Sunday over the best psychic in the world. Speaking of the best psychic in the world, or at least self-proclaimed psychic, I'm about to trash Sylvia Brown. So if any of you are a fan of hers, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. Sylvia Brown was not only a fraud, but she devastated parents of missing children. And out comes the soapbox. If you don't know the location of a missing child or what that child's status is, whether missing or dead, keep your mouth shut. These parents were sick with fear and worry, and all Brown did was use their pain in order to spotlight herself and make a few bucks. In October 2002, 11-year-old Sean Hornbeck went missing in Missouri. Later that year, Sean's parents appeared on an episode of the Montel Williams show with Brown. And please don't trash the parents because they appeared on a talk show with a psychic. Parents will do anything to bring attention to their child's case in, ho in hopes of getting information. Brown, very sympathetically, of course, and on national TV, told the parents Sean was dead and his killer had dreadlocks. But surprise, in 2007, not only was Sean found alive, but another boy was found alive with him. They had been abducted and held by Michael Devlin who did not have dreadlocks. While Brown's business manager pleaded for people not to judge Brown too harshly because everyone makes mistakes, Brown again devastated another parent of a missing child. 
In April 2003, 17-year-old Amanda Berry went missing the day before her birthday in Cleveland, Ohio. Once again, Brown appeared on a daytime talk show, this time with Amanda's mother, Luana Miller. Brown told Luana that Amanda died on her birthday. She did not suffer and had been killed by a man in his 20s, didn't act alone, and Amanda's black hoodie would be found in a dumpster with DNA on it. Luana asked if she would ever see her daughter again, and Brown responded, yeah, in heaven. Luana died in 2006 after losing all hope she would ever find her daughter. In 2013, Amanda, and two other missing women, Michelle Knight and Gina de Jesus, were found alive in the home of Ariel Castro, a man in his 40s who acted alone in the abductions. Once again, Brown devastated a parent of a kidnapping victim just for a bit of fame and in an attempt to sell more books. Several times during her life, Brown hyped that both the police and the FBI had contacted her several times in order to consult on a missing persons or murder case. In 2014, after Brown's death, her FBI file became public after a Freedom of Information Act request. The only interest the FBI took in her was investigating her for fraud. Nothing more. Brown certainly isn't the only person who has claimed to have psychic visions of missing or murdered children. Hundreds of psychics predicted the whereabouts of 11-year-old J.C. Dugard after she went missing in 1991 in California. Many of them proclaimed J.C. was dead, and all of them were wrong about J.C.'s location. Dugard had been held at the home of Philip and Nancy Garrido in Antioch, California, where Philip Garrido had constantly raped J.C. over the course of 18 years and where J.C. gave birth to two of Garrido's children. J.C. and her two daughters were rescued from Garrido's control in 2009 without the help of psychics. Here's the thing about psychics. There is no documented case of a crime, murder, or kidnapping being solved with the information given to law enforcement by psychics. There are cases with some very eerie coincidences like those in the Gacy investigation, but neither one of those psychics really gave information that put Gacy behind bars. And Miss Allison gave a location of Robert's body where police had already been searching and had been reported in the news before her involvement. And the thing about not taking a fee for her involvement in the investigation? Miss Allison made her living by book sales, and many police officers accused Allison of paying them off to say she had worked or solved crimes they investigated. Like Brown, other psychics accept no consulting fee from police, mainly because police weren't going to pay them anyway. And they make their money from books, TV deals, and 1-800 hotlines. To wrap all of this up, psychics do more damage in criminal investigations than they do good. They take precious time away from investigations because even their tips have to be investigated by detectives. Many of these people just want their 15 minutes of fame and prey on the pain and suffering of families in order to get it. 
Maybe some psychics really do want to help and want to alleviate the family's pain. But in the end, they just end up making it worse and cause further distress to both the family and law enforcement. I would love to say that there are psychics out there because how kick-ass would that be that we would be able to catch a kidnapper or killer quickly instead of victims turning into cold cases? It would be even better if these people were able to stop crimes before they even happened. But alas, those are storylines for TV, for TV shows and that steamy romance novel I'm currently reading right now which is Dream Man by Linda Howard. As I said before, I'm more likely to be on the side of detectives and FBI profilers than I am psychics. These men and women in law enforcement have years and years of experience tracking down criminals and bringing families answers. And that experience is better than any psychic prediction. This week I want to tell you about a case in Wyoming, and I want you to share it. I took the following article from Investigation Discovery. 32-year-old Irene Gakwa moved from Kenya to the United States to pursue her dreams of becoming a nurse. Less than three years later, on March 20th, 2022, her brother reported her missing to police. She was last seen by her parents on February 24th, 2022, on a WhatsApp video call. At the time of the call, they had no idea she was living in Gillette, Wyoming with a boyfriend she had met on a Craigslist forum. In early March, before she was reported missing, but after she was last seen on the video call with her parents, Gakwa's account was used to send short WhatsApp messages to her parents to explain why she wasn't answering their video calls. According to her older brother, Gakwa usually used a mix of Swahili and Kenyan slang to text message in text messages, but these messages seemed different, like somebody was using Google Translate to send them. After her family couldn't reach her on phone, her brothers, whom she shared a phone plan with, looked through her phone records and found out about the boyfriend she'd been living with, 39-year-old Nathan Heitman. Police talked to Heitman the same day Gakwa was reported missing. He claimed he last saw Gakwa in late February when she came home one night, packed her clothing in two plastic bags, and left in a dark-colored SUV. Heitman allegedly stole, stole from Gakwa after she went missing. He reportedly withdrew money from her account after the disappearance in addition to deleting her email and changing her passwords. He was arrested on May 10, 2022 for two felony counts of theft, one felony count of unlawful use of a credit card, and two felony counts of crimes against intellectual property. On the day after the last WhatsApp call Gakwa had with her family, Heitman used her credit card to purchase a shovel, jeans, and boots. Her family continues to speak out about their heartbreak and dedication to, to find justice for Gakwa. Heitman has not been charged in connection with Gakwa's disappearance, but is considered a person of interest. On June 8, 2022, Heitman pleaded not guilty to all charges against him and re was released on a $10,000 bond. He is scheduled to appear in court in November 2022. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Gillette Police Department at 307 682 
5151. If you don't feel comfortable going to the police, you can share your tip with me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or on Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. I will post a picture of Irene on my Instagram account. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Wyoming who do. Share Irene's story with them. That does it for this episode, crime fans. I'll be back next time with a case that will make you double check all those safety seals on the stuff you bought at the store. Until then, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Later.